Verse 11 of Joel 2. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make your approach among the heathen, but I will remove far off from you the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea, and his hand apart toward the uttermost sea. And his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great things. May God bless this reading and hearing of his word. Martin Luther King is dead. And he died in what we would call a public calamity. It's always a public calamity when men take the law into their own hands. It's a public calamity when anyone is murdered. And uh, it was a public calamity when Martin Luther King was killed. This is wrong. This is sinful. And it seems to me that uh, the prophet Joel has some words that are very applicable to the situation that uh, we're in, uh, in reference to that event in our nation. Uh, The prophet Joel had a threefold vision. He had a vision uh, in reference to a certain public calamity that had passed just recently, a, a recent past event in the meaning of it. And he had a vision or an insight into, uh, from God, a very present threat of further calamity. And then he had a vision of Uh, the future victory that belonged to the people of God and of God's purposes in the world. First, he had uh, a vision of the the past calamity, an actual plague of uh, locusts had swept the land. We read about this in the opening verses, uh, as he says in the fourth verse of the first chapter, That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. That which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten. That which the canker worm hath left, 
hath the caterpillar eaten? Uh, he said, just one after another, these plagues have come upon the crops, so much so that uh, there's not any wine left for the drunkards. Uh, there's not any food left uh, for many of the people. He says, the field is wasted, the land mourneth, the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languisheth. Be ashamed, ye husbandmen, howl ye vine dressers, the wheat and the barley, and so on. It's gone. This is a tragedy, a tremendous tragedy that he speaks of as uh, that which the nation was so aware of, this public calamity. Now, he refers to this public calamity just past as the day of the Lord. In the first chapter, in the 15th verse, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. This, he says, in effect, uh, was not chance. The people of the day undoubtedly would say, What a, what a misfortune. What an unfortunate uh, chance event. And he said, No. No, it was the day of the Lord. It was God's activity. It was not a chance event. God sent the locusts. This is from his hand. Nothing chance about it. His direct activity involved. God has cursed your land. And I would have to say that uh, I believe the same thing to be true about the shooting of Martin Luther King. That, in effect, it uh, was a judgment of God. We could say a judgment of God on Martin Luther King. Well, possibly so. But more than that, a judgment of God upon our nation. This calamity and like calamities that resulted from it. And the whole situation that we are involved in. This is not apart from God's hand or our past history as a nation. This is his dealing with America, uh, with the... A nation here and its uh, past ways, this, in effect, was the day of the Lord uh, for us. God could have prevented this very simply. In a sense, ultimately, it came from his hand. We read this morning where God works all things after the counsel of his own will. Joel not only had a vision of this past calamity and uh, an understanding that it was from God and that the people were to listen to God, but he also had a vision of the present threat. A second vision was in effect given him of judgment of a more serious nature threatening the people. The coming of an army. This is, this is brought out in the second chapter in the first verse. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh. For it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountain. A great people and a strong. There is a nation coming upon you, a great nation, a strong nation. There hath never been the like, neither shall any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. They will come and devastate this land and this people. They will be a terrible uh, foe. And when they come, uh, 
the uh, things that will take place, the terrorism and so forth, as he goes on to dwell on this, will be awful. And I think uh, that, in effect, uh, this very thing that Joel saw facing his nation is what we can all see facing our nation today, that the past calamity is but a precursor of a very much greater present threat. And we have spoken several occasions here recently of the man who would be something of the Whitaker Chambers of our day, Philip Abbott Luce, who was a former high member in the Communist Party in this nation and just several years ago defected and has revealed their plans and their activities in the uh, present race movement, uh, who tells how he himself was a part of a group in uh, New York which was to uh, personally uh, train rioters and uh, teach them how to uh, use weapons of various natures. And uh, as he describes the plans, he tells of the of the plans for guerrilla warfare in the streets, of the plans to uh, set off bombs in the crowded subway stations and in the buildings and to burn and to, uh, in various ways, uh, knock out the power in our cities and so on. All of this detailed plans. Uh, I think that anyone with any sense can see that this is exactly what's in store for our nation unless something changes the tide. Anyone who cannot see that, in my opinion, simply is not facing facts and has their head in the sand. So we're very much in the in the situation that they were in, and I would go on to say that, in my opinion, Dr. Martin Luther King, knowingly or unknowingly, contributed to this very situation, that his supposed nonviolent movement to bridge the gap between no violence and the violence of the present day, between uh, law and order and the breach of law and order. Uh, Men cannot begin to decide which laws they will break and which ones they will keep without calling in question and beginning to undermine the whole system of law and order. And he played his part in that. And he resulted, uh, that what resulted in his case was the product that, in, to some extent, he had produced. There was also a vision of future victory granted unto Joel as he sees things that lay beyond his day and his generation, not victory for his own day necessarily but victory ultimately for God's people and for God's purposes. Uh, There would be a time when God would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. This is predicted in the third chapter and the 28th verse. As it says, excuse me, in the second chapter, 28th verse, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see vision. Also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. No longer in the day that he prophesies 
of? Would there be simply those great leaders in the nation, such as Elijah or Moses or the king, uh, who would be given a special portion of God's Spirit, but rather even the lowest, who were truly people of God, even down to the bondservants and slaves, who really belonged to God through faith in his Messiah, even on those would be given an amazing outpouring of God's Spirit. This, of course, uh, uh, was accomplished at Pentecost. And uh, when the Spirit of God came into the world in this outpouring way, Peter stood up and he says, We're not drunk. He said, This is that which was spoken of by Joel the prophet. And then he quoted this passage. Again, he saw the <clears throat> uh, punishment of God's enemies. As he goes on to say in the 30th verse of the second chapter, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. There would be terrible destruction wreaked on those who were not God's people, but for God's people there would be deliverance. And I would say in a sense that this probably points to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And then even beyond that event to the great final uh, wreaking of God's wrath upon his enemies at the second coming of Jesus Christ. He saw the putting of Israel back into the land. A very interesting thing since it's transpired in our own day. And the third chapter in the first verse, Behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, And then again the pleading with all nations. As it says that... In verse 2, I will gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision, and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. And then he finally speaks of the perfection of his people in the uh, third chapter and the 17th verse. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. It shall come to pass in that day that the mountain shall drop down new wine, and the, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth out of the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Shittim. Here would be a great period of blessing and perfection for his people, no longer strangers mixed in with his people, a day when he would dwell with them and there would be peace and plenty. He foresaw this final triumph of the purposes of God and deliverance of the people of God. Ultimately, they would be victorious. But still there was the present threat. There was the past calamity. And so he had a word for them. He had a word, first of all, for God's people in this situation in the nation. 
and his call to his own is issued in the second chapter, the 15th verse, as he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, in the church, among my people. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Get my people together. And let them uh, meet on this solemn occasion and discuss the situation. And and let them call upon God. Uh, Verse 17, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heaven should rule over them. And he says, Get my people together, the people who know me and who are rightly related to me, and let them come together and let them mean business. Let this come before everything else. Let the bridegroom come out of his chamber. And let them put this ahead of business, ahead of marriage, ahead of everything else, to call on me. Let my people gather and discuss and consider and look to me. And then it's a call issued also to all men, as he says uh, <clears throat> to, in effect, the heathen, that he would plead with them in the valley of decision. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of, deci- of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. What is his advice, both to his own people and to everyone? His advice is to repent. Very simple word, repent. He says in the 12th verse of the second chapter, Therefore, in light of this past calamity, in light of the present threat, therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. Here's this call to repentance. Repentance is a rending of the heart. It's not just an outward external matter of coming together, although he says do this and cry out, but let it go beyond the external. Let it be right down to the heart. Be dead in earnest and examine your heart. And uh, second, uh, let it result in a right about face, a turning, right about face, turning from your sins. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him turn unto the Lord. Repentance is to leave the sins we love before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing them no more. Let his people turn in this way. Let them turn unto the Lord. Let them turn from self. We've turned everyone to our own way. Well, let us turn now to him and to his way. The Shorter Catechism says that repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. He says, let us do this. And remember, this is addressed to his people. He says, uh, what are my people to do? They're to gather and they're to call on me 
but they are to consider their own ways. And they are to turn from their sins. What is God saying to us? Never mind what their particular sins were. What are our particular sins in the light of our public calamity, in the light of our present threat? I would say that one of the great sins that God's people have to repent of is their attitude toward the Negro. Oh, me. That's one of the great sins that I have to repent of. And that's one of the great sins that most of the people that I talk to in this church and in other churches need to honestly examine before God. And God's pressing it home to our hearts. Let us repent of the way we have, in effect, looked down on them and the way we have misused them and the way we've been guilty of abusing them I myself. Oh, I remember when uh, one of our men here in jest said to a nigger with the income tax division here, he said, "Uh, where did you grow up? He said, on the north side. He says, well, I I did too. I probably bounced a rock off your daddy's head. I don't know whether he did or not. I know I did some of that. And uh, this was a pattern of life for me as a teenager. And uh, I don't know that I've ever really faced up to the wrongness of so much of my attitude in that. Let us repent of our failure to make an honest effort to reach the Negro with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, I think, God is saying to his church today in America. I believe he's saying it to this church. And you have to start here with you and me. And then we can look uh, to other portions of the church, and maybe we can even lead in some of these things. That's not to say that I have the answers of how to go about these things, but I would think that God will lead into the answers. Second, uh, as we say, there is a word of repentance addressed to the non-Christian. Even a non-Christian can see the present threat and the past calamity. Even the non-Christian knows something better be done, and I will tell the non-Christian where to start. Start with your relationship to God. Start with your decision. What will you do with Jesus? Were this calamity not upon us and this present threat, you would still need to wrestle with the decision about your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever really surrendered your will to him? Have you ever really trusted him? Have you ever really faced up to his claims as to be the Son of God and the Savior that you need? That's the place for the non-Christian to start. Were this not being pressed upon you so hard as it is? But just let this be a trumpet call in your ear to go ahead and not delay this decision. You can be one more step towards a solution of a very difficult situation. Why should we do this? He says, because, number one, of the propensity of God to be merciful. He says, who rend your heart, not your garments, Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. God, uh, God is willing to change what he otherwise would be purposing to do. If you have trouble fitting that in with predestination, so do I. But I, the scriptures say that God is 
waiting to see what we will do, and then he's going to do one of two things. And that what he does will depend on what we do. And let's turn to God and see what he will do, because he has a propensity to be merciful. Maybe, even now, if God's people, and we've got to start with you and me, will turn to him, maybe God will deliver our land and our children and ourselves. And if we do not turn, brethren, I don't believe we have even uh, the shortest period of time left. God has a propensity to be merciful, but when his mercy is spurned and his call goes unheeded, then his judgment is carried through. There is the possibility that he would do it. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? If there was even the remotest possibility, you ought to do this thing, says Joel. And finally, there's even the promise of God's being merciful, as he says in the 18th verse, uh, after saying for the ministers and the people to call upon God and to repent, then he says in the 18th verse of the second chapter, Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you blessings, corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied. In verse 20, I will remove far off from you the northern army. I will take this people that is such a threat to you, and I will cause the thing to die down, and I will quell the disturbance. There is the promise throughout the word of God. God does not tell us to seek his face in vain. God is much more willing to answer than we are to turn to him and to call on him. But we must do it in dead earnest if if he is to do his part. Beloved, uh, it seems to me that We labor from a standpoint of ultimate victory, if we're really Christians. And yet we have a fearful responsibility to our age, to our children, to our nation, to our heritage. And we have something that we can do. We do not have to simply wring our hands and run and and say, oh, there's nothing we can do. I think it's a sin to say, there's nothing that I can do in the situation that our nation faces. I think there's a whole lot that I can do. I think that I live in the day and age when the Spirit of God has been poured out on his people. And I believe that one man filled with the Spirit of God can make an impact on his nation that people will say those who've turned the world upside down have come hither also. I believe that we could have issue forth from this church a hundred Pauls Everyone filled with the same spirit who filled Paul and worked through Paul and used Paul to bring about social revolutions in his day because people were changed by the message of Jesus Christ. This is the power that we have to offer. And who knows what God would do if we would mean business and we would say, God, we acknowledge our sins. And they're before us. We repent of them. Show us. Teach us. We're humble. We mean business. And for those who are here tonight who would be in the other category, not his people, uh, tonight you're in the valley of decision. Tonight he's facing you with what will you do with Jesus? And he's urging it home in a very unusual way, maybe in our day.
But in his name, I would ask you tonight to make your decision for Jesus Christ, to submit your will to him, to place your trust in him, to receive him as Lord and Savior.